Welcome back to the Set Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Mills. Thanks for coming by and hanging out with me here today on the set. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a little bit about the in-season tournament. We're going to be talking about the disgrace, again, the disgrace to the NBA that is the Detroit Pistons. And then we're just going to be getting into a couple of other, um, some names that I want to shed some light on, some different teams that I want to shed some light on. Um, overall, it should be a fun episode. Um, I just want to say thank you to everybody who um, has listened to an episode, um, left a rating, um, left a comment, anything like that. I really appreciate your guys' support. Um, we're in over six different countries right now, which is kind of an insane thing to believe right now. Um, I really appreciate everybody's support, sharing this, leaving five stars, whatever you may have done. I appreciate your support. If this is your first episode, welcome. Um, I want to appreciate you again for hanging out with me here on the set. So without further ado... Let's get straight into today's episode. So I want to talk about this in-season tournament. I feel like that this is the best implemented value product that the NBA has implemented over the past couple seasons. You know, we've seen recently Adam Silver trying to take the reins back as the commissioner of the NBA, you know, it really feels like, I feel like if you ask anybody this, even somebody who's lightly tapped into the NBA, you know they see the headlines about um, players' demands. You know, even the most casual of NBA fan who, you know, maybe just shows up for the finals or anything like that, obviously sees the things like um, James Harden, those sorts of trade requests, you know, Kevin Durant leaving the Nets, um, Kyrie Irving, same things. Those are the things that get clicks. You know, those are the sort of things that, even the most casual NBA fan knows about because there's such big deals amongst, you know, NBA media, NBA Twitter, all those sorts of things. So everybody knows about the player empowerment movement that has been taking place over the last couple of years around this league. And, you know, it's a great thing. You know, it's always a employee versus employer. And at the end of the day, NBA players are still employees and they still have employers. Um, whether we think about that or not. But it really feels like with this NBA in-season tournament that it's not just a where it feels like the players lose or the players feel like that they're losing these these battles or these conversations that take every, that take place every so often with the CBA and things like that. With re, restructuring it into something like this, I feel like it's been an absolute positive for the league. You know, we kind of saw some things in the offseason – where Adam Silver, like I said, trying to take those reins back, is implementing things like, you know, the 65-game rule, where, you know, 65 games is affecting your, if you're not playing those 65 games and you miss more than that, that 17, with without probable cause, obviously. Um, if we're seeing players miss those games, you know, it's affecting their money, it's affecting their accolades. Um, you know, you were disqualified from a lot of runnings for um, anything from first team to third team to MVP, DPOY. He's basically telling your players, like, you have to show up to work unless you have a legitimate reason not to. And obviously he is 100% right in saying that. But it always seems like it was a player versus, or an employee versus employer sort of thought process. So then we see all those rules implement, and we see this in-season tournament starting to garner some backlash, some support, a lot of mixed feelings on it. But I really feel like that so far, this in-season tournament has turned out to be absolutely everything that Adam Silver could have wanted and more. 
we're seeing competitive regular season games, even outside of the the games that you know we watched last night with the Celtics and Pacers and the Pelicans and Kings. You know, we're seeing these teams care, and it feels like for the longest time that these or the conversation has been that these star players, these teams don't care about the regular season, especially these top caliber teams, um, these Nuggets, um, teams around that, same, you know, the Bucks, Celtics, things like that, t- players like that, teams like that. They don't really care because they know they're going to make the playoffs anyways of just coasting because of how good they are, that as long as they make it to the playoffs, that they'll just they'll be fine. We'll deal with that bridge when we get there. Just make sure everybody's healthy. We'll cross that bridge whenever we get there. It seems like that was sort of the thing that we're that we were seeing on a consistent basis. And obviously, as somebody who's watching regular season games, watching as many games as he can every single night, it feels as if this has been an absolute positive for the casual and for the diehard NBA fan like myself. There's, it feels like in the NBA that the 82 season or 82 game season. I believe, personally, is the perfect amount. I don't feel like it's too much. Like the, I think MLBs have been insane with their 162, quite literally doubling the amount of NBA games. I feel like that's a bit insane, but they also have it set up to with rotations for rest and things like that. But 82 games, I feel like, is a perfect, is a pretty perfect season, you know? Um, NFL, you don't want to extend that season anymore because... Then, like we've seen this season, everybody's going down with injuries already. If you extended that three or four games, you're going to see how, however many more injuries. And but this in-season tournament is a perfect implementation. There's no, there's no adding on games. It only adds one game, and that's just for the two teams that meet up in the championship um, in Las Vegas, um, making their seasons an 83-game season. But that's still, you know, only one game more. Um, but I feel like that 82-game regular season is absolutely perfect. So that's what my thought was, was how is this in-season tournament going to change that? Because like I've said, I feel like it's very perfect. And the ability to interweave a brand new concept with already a pre-existing concept that I believe is leaps and bounds better ahead of the competition, because it feels like if, with an 82 game season, obviously you got nights where teams are playing, you know, 13 games, um, or you got 13 games going on across the association with four four teams taking a night off, but you got 26 teams to watch and 13 games to cover. Seeing that sort of slow down with this in season tournament, I believe, is giving the viewer more of a reason to watch these games. I was excited last night finding out that I only had one game to watch at 7:30 and one game to watch at 10:30. I didn't have to worry about jumping from, you know, Celtics to Bulls to Bucks to Warriors um, to Clippers to, you know, just hopping from team to team. And especially being on the East Coast, you know, those games for me, they start at 1030 in L.A. So trying to watch the Warriors, Clippers, Lakers, teams like that, you know, you are you're staying up effectively till one o'clock in the morning just watching these games. You know, not everybody can do that or you know, has the schedule to do that. So watching these these games that are just, hey, let's all focus on this tonight and see where this is going. You know, being out in random places and I hear I overhear people saying like, why does that court look the way that it does? You know, and that can spark up conversation. Oh, they're doing an in season tournament, it's this new thing. And you know, seeing people get invested in it. Even even people in my life have asked like, 
you know, why, why is the, who was it, the Hornets, yeah, because I'm here in North Carolina, seeing the Hornets, like, why does the Hornets court look like that? Well, actually, they're doing this in-season tournament, and it's spreading by word of mouth, it's spreading on social media, because people are interested in this. So, obviously, the number one thing that I did, whenever I'm thinking about these numbers, and how much enjoyment I'm getting out of it, is somebody has to put together an article. We're in 2023, right? So I came across a Forbes article. And I'm just reading, um, reading through this article before I get charged for it. And there's a lot of numbers that really jump out the page at me. Um, in this Forbes article, uh, let me see who wrote it. Brian Bouchard of the Forbes staff. I uh, appreciate you putting together this article. So we'll say, well, I'll just go over some key numbers that really jumped off the page at me. Um, in this article, saying that roughly 2 million people tuned in for the national televised game between the Sacramento Kings and Golden State Warriors. So you can make the argument, oh, you know, they went to Game 7 last year, Draymond stepped on DeMontis Sabonis' chest, um, there's a lot of bad blood between these games or between these teams. It's turned into a rival rivalry. We all know that. You know, every single year it feels like Duke UNC was breaking records every single year or, or you know, 49ers and Seahawks back in 2015. Those were the sorts of games that people really look forward to. But even keeping that in mind, the Sacramento Kings and Golden State Warriors was still just a regular season game, it was, or it was a tournament game. Uh, but it, you know, like I said earlier, it's still a regular season game implemented very well. That's a 93% increase. So with that number, basically they're saying basically last year it was about 1.1 million. So jumping that up, almost doubling. The viewership. That's exactly what Adam Silver would have wanted, right? Then, even saying that is, that Kings-Warriors game, like I just said, is an East Coast inhabitant. That one had 1.9 million people, and then that same night, the Boston Celtics beat the Bucks, And the Warriors match on the November 22nd had 1.4 million viewers, Neither of which those games counted towards the tournament. But people are tuning into this tournament because it is such a flashy thing to think about. These players are caring about this. There's, you know, they're they're really trying to show that, hey, we're more than just a April through June league, which it feels like is whenever everybody starts watching the NBA. Playoffs, things like that. You know, we've seen a 26% increase from games played during the same time last year. Locally broadcast games are up 20% from last November. I went to a Hornets game against the, before they played the Celtics, they played the Knicks at home. Um, you know, that was the night that Brandon Miller dropped 30, and the crowd was in there going crazy. Even though it's like, that night it wasn't an in-season tournament game, but that was still, I went to a game last year against the Mavericks, that building was not hopping the way that it was against the Knicks. And it really wasn't a particularly close game, like, there were some garbage time buckets that made that score a bit more, you know, easier to digest for Hornets fans, but that game was still, it, you know, the Knicks were really in control the whole way, but it feels as if these these fans of teams are really getting behind their, really getting behind their organizations and really, really, you know, pushing for them to go out and win the in season tournament. You know, <clears throat> whenever we're looking at the matchups that we've had for the in-season tournament. We got Celtics Pacers, we got Pels Kings. Three out of four of those teams have not done anything significant 
within the last few years. Obviously, Kings made it last year to the playoffs, got knocked out in the first round by the Golden State Warriors. Um, but that's their first playoffs, playoff success in over 20 years. Um, the Pelicans, you know, even as I'm not a Pels fan, but as a Zion fan, this is the first. Obviously, this isn't a playoff, and it's, this isn't a playoff series. It's not a seven-game series. It was, you know, Pels fans' first time of seeing Zion sort of in any sort of role like this, you know, any sort of situation like this, I should better much say. Um, you know, the last time the Pelicans even made the playoffs was back in 2021. And you know who wasn't there that entire season? Zion Williamson. So we haven't seen a Pelicans team in a playoff atmosphere with Zion Williamson until last night. You know, it was a lot. It's just a lot of fun to watch those sorts of things. Obviously, the Celtics have had success. You know, everybody knows that. 17 banners. But even, you know, the Pacers, this is especially for the Pacers. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get to the Celtics Pacers recap. But, you know, these the Pacers fans have really not had anything to cheer for. Um, not since, uh, you know, the early 90s or maybe the early 2000s. Um, but these Pacers fans really, really showed out last night. Um, with the Pacers being the at-home favorite, with the Celtics being the three seed, Pacers being the two seed. This game was a lot of fun to watch. Um, the Pacers game felt just like a seven, game seven. Um, the home crowd was treating it like so. And the players are treating it as so. Um, it's obviously been talked about you know, on Twitter, uh, multiple different podcasts. Um, but you know, these Pacers players aren't making a lot of money. Or, well, okay. They're making a lot of money compared to you and I, but in NBA money, they're not really making that much. A lot of these players are making two, three million dollars. So they're really, really fighting for that $500,000 bonus. I mean, just in the same exact way that you would fight, you know, just do your absolute best with your, within your own company to get that bonus at the end of the year, these players are doing the same exact thing. You know, if you have a certain goal to reach in your mind of, you know, if I hit this goal by the end of the year, my company's going to give me X amount more dollars, I think you'd do everything in your power to achieve that number and use it on whatever. I'm sure these NBA players are in the same exact boat with, you know, a 500000 bonus being a six-year salary. That's a nice little, you know, that's a nice little bonus to get at the very end of the year. So these Pacers players, especially, you know, they showed fight last night. Um, we saw the Celtics come out, and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum both had 30 points um, just by themselves um, at the very end of the night. But what we saw was this Pacers team, it felt like at halftime, the, the Celtics were kind of going to come out and just sort of run away with this game. And... We saw Rick Carlisle come out of halftime. And I don't know if it's Rick Carlisle because Rick Carlisle is historically a defensive coach. Uh, or, sorry, an offensive coach. But we saw this Pacers team come out and play defense. Now, okay, it's, you know, if you're saying to yourself, you know, every NBA team is playing defense. Not this Pacers team. This Pacers team is... I believe they are third in offensive rating. I believe it is. No, they're first. They're first in points per game, third in three point um, three point percentage. You know, and that really shows. Um, that's exactly what the Pacers do. That's all that the Pacers really focus on is just get up as many shots as possible. If you can make some mistakes, we're going to minimize ours, and we'll see who comes out at the end of the day. But um, yeah, they have an offensive rating of one hundred twenty three point three points. Um, one hundred twenty three point three. Um, with a defensive rating of 120.3. 
So the higher offensive rating is great. The higher defensive rating, not so great. Uh, but, you know, they're 11th and 8 in their last um, – over the course of the season. And it's been nothing but just not chucking up shots because, for me, I feel like shot chucking is inefficient. But this Pacers team um, – this Pacers train with the conductor of Tyrese Halliburton running that point guard has just been, you know, a masterclass on offense. And for anybody who I, who I'm trying to like, if anybody were to come up to ask me, you know, I'm really trying to get into the NBA and fall in love with the NBA. Who would you recommend I watch? I'm recommending the Indiana Pacers because you're going to get the number one thing that people are in love with in 2023, which is offense. And that's exactly what you're going to get um, with this Pacers team. But we saw this Pacers team come in after the second half and show some fight. You know, we see in the first half it felt like that the Celtics were trying to get that switch onto Tyrese um, because Tyrese isn't a plus defender um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Tyrese is an absolute unit, a system on offense in and of himself, but not the greatest defender. Has the tools if he bulks up a little bit at 6'5", great length. Um, but still, at the end of the day, not a great defender. So we saw the Celtics trying to make a lot of switches onto Tyrese to see if we could get a you know, a mismatch with maybe JT, Jalen Brown, or even you know, you could get him in the post against Al Horford. Um, but even then, Al Horford only had, I think he had one shot attempt, and that's it. It really felt like it. Kristaps Porzingis' um, presence was definitely missed tonight as the Celtics were kind of lacking um, a little bit, of, little bit more inside presence and a little bit more of a that on the offensive side inside presence, but on the defensive side, really, really lacking a, a defensive presence um, on the inside. But they're also missing a little bit. It felt like down the stretch of the game that the inside shots that Jason and Jalen were getting in the first half, which were just they were essentially walking their way into the paint, you know, which isn't to be expected against this Pacers team, you know, they don't play defense, but after that second half, it really felt like that the Pacers stepped up, and that's what makes it feel like that the NBA needed something like a March Madness tournament. So we see this Pacers team come out at halftime, and they everybody's getting in a chair, everybody's playing good defense, um, Tyrese was able to minimize his defensive liability, it felt like, a bit more. Um, I don't know if this was a Rick Carlisle rotation where he's saying, um, you know, rotate onto the primary ball handler instead of switching everything. It felt like that they switched a lot in that first half, but in that second half it seemed as if um, everybody was staying home a bit more. But then Tyrese Halliburton ended up himself had 26 points, 10 total rebounds, three of which were offensive. Um, that's what I'm saying whenever they're missing a defensive presence on the inside, the Celtics were. That's why Tyrese, who's not really known for being an offensive rebounder, was able to grab three. Or even being a rebounder at all, you know, Tyrese is around that, I believe he's, what, four? Uh, yeah, four rebounds per game is what he's averaging. But last night he was able to get 10. And 13 assists. And zero turnovers. I feel as if that's the biggest thing. Is thirteen, a thirteen to zero turnover ratio, absolutely unheard of, and absolutely absurd. But we saw this Pacers team come out and show a lot of fight, and it seemed like as if the Celtics were 
not taking this as seriously um, in that second half. It seemed as if they kind of got lackadaisical and just started missing shots that they weren't missing there in the first half. I think um, Derek White shot two for nine. Um, but it just seemed like this Pacers team really, really wanted it. And you got big games from Andrew Nemhard. You got big games from, obviously, Tyrese. Um, Miles had a good game. Benedict had a good game. Um, just a lot of overall willingness to fight in this game. And like I said, I think that's something that we've just been missing from the regular season. And this implements perfectly with the regular season. There is no, it's not like it's adding on three or four, five, six games extra a year. It's just implemented into the regular season that, that it's already watching. I, I'm going to be there watching the regular season anyways, but we got a reason for the casual fan to be invested in these games. The The courts are flashy. The players are loving it. We've seen multiple, multiple players come out to speak on like just how much fun it feels like that they're having. And... I don't really think there's been any downsides. I got none to, I got nothing to gripe, nothing to complain about, nothing to um, criticize on. The only thing I could really criticize on this isn't even the in-season tournament itself, but it's League Pass. I'm trying to watch four games at a time on one screen, and sometimes this game is available, and then 30 seconds later it's not. And then I try to switch over to another game, and that one's just not available at all. And then, obviously, I'm obviously blacked out of Hornets games because I live here. It's just the product that we're paying paying for with NBA League Pass is not worth it at the moment. So, having to go back and rewatch these games, it's not giving me the same feeling as if I was watching it live. But whenever I do go back and rewatch these games, um, it feels like that the crowd is more into it than ever, especially the, the longer that these games go on. Um, you know, it's obviously whenever you get deeper and deeper into a game and you hit that fourth quarter, fans are on their feet yelling, screaming, doing whatever. But these fans seem more engaged from tip-off. You know, you, you watch an NBA game, you see the first, I don't know, you see the first what feels like 4,000 people not show up until midway through the, you know, midway through the first quarter. But it seems like whenever you're watching these games, everybody's there, everybody's locked in, everybody knows the stakes. Everybody knows what's going on. The only thing that they that people have been complaining about, and it's not even people, it's players, is the point differential system. But I love the point differential system, playing all the way down to the last second, playing to the final whistle. The only way I could see that being a negative is, is if you're running... Okay, okay, just like with Derrick Rose. Remember Derrick Rose? Um, they were up with like 50 seconds left in the fourth quarter. And then that's whenever he tore his ACL. And obviously all the blame went to Tom Thibodeau. And it's it's 100% garnered as far as why was he in the game so late. Is I feel as if we don't... If we just focus on the end-season tournament for what it is, and obviously it's been a great thing, but we see... But if we start seeing coaches pushing... Maybe it's a young player even. Like, let's say in a couple years the Detroit Pistons, the absolute disgrace that they are to the NBA and for the game of basketball. If we see them in the plane in a couple years and they have a star young player and there's, you know, there's 45 seconds in um, the final game, but, and you know, they're up 15 or 16 and they keep him in that game and he ends up injuring an ankle and he's out for the rest of the season or he tears an ACL or he tear, 
tears an Achilles or something just like that happens. You know, God forbid, obviously. But I feel like that's whenever the haters on the in-season tournament who just hate for the sake of hating will come out of their little slimy hole that they live in and start complaining. And I feel like is it at that point it can't be it can't be argued with. So I really obviously hope that that does not happen whatsoever. But it's just something that I'm keeping in the back of my mind is even these older players, like tonight we got Katie and LeBron going up against each other. If something were to happen to one of those older guys and you know now the Lakers are completely eliminated from playoff contention, you got Lakers fans pissed, you got LeBron fans, fans pissed, you got media pissed, you got people who just want to see, you know, great basketball, they're pissed because now the, you know, the greatest of all time is now missing a game because of a game that for being in a game that essentially didn't matter at that point. Feels like those are the sort of conversations that can arise from this, but nothing so far. So I'm not going to obviously talk anything into existence. So so far this in-season tournament, especially with the Celtics Pacers game, has been absolutely killer. Um and everything that Adam Silver's wanted it to be. Then even the Pelicans and Kings game that followed that game last night, um, it feels as if, obviously, the Pels weren't at home. Kings were the one seed, Pels were the four seed, so Kings had home court advantage. But I really, really, really wish we could have seen this game back in New Orleans because I'm kind of thinking while I'm watching this, great basketball from both teams. Um, Brandon Ingram put on a show, and so did Zion. Zion could have done a bit better, but I really wish we could have seen this game back in New Orleans. And that's solely for the reason about, like we've talked about, it's a playoff atmosphere, it's a March Madness atmosphere, is these Pelicans haven't seen Zion on the floor at all in a playoff sort of scenario, playoff sort of setting. And this is that taste, this is an appetizer of what it could be maybe in you know, four or five months down the line, you know, and this this Pelicans team is really starting to find its footing, which it really felt like they did last night. Um, C.J. McCollum, this was his first road game back from having a collapsed lung. He just got cleared to fly, so he's been playing a couple home games. Um, looked good on his way back from a collapsed lung. I mean, you can't really you can't really be a jerk to the guy just coming off of that. Um, just got cleared to fly. Played in that game yesterday against the Kings. Um, made some timely shots. So it's good to see him back on the court. They just got Trey Murphy back, who's already feeling like that's kind of what they were missing was a little bit more perimeter. They're missing a lot of perimeter shooting, but whenever your only perimeter shooter is Matt Ryan and Matt Ryan goes down with an injury, you know you're not in a good spot. So having Trey Murphy come back and now Larry Nance Jr. is out, we still haven't seen this Pelicans team what feels like at full at full capacity yet. Um, Dyson Daniels is coming out looking like a an all defensive player guard. Is that insane to say? As a six foot five, six foot six, um, tall point guard who is just showing the defensive prowess that you want to see from a young player like himself. Um, last night he only had was it five or six minutes? Yeah, he had six minutes. But even in those six minutes, he had two steals. He had an offensive rebound um, and a plus eight while he was on the floor. Even just for those six minutes. Um, where New Orleans came out on top of Sacramento by 10. But it's really going to feel like it's going to take this Pelicans team a little bit more time to maybe find what their identity is because it feels like at this moment the Pills don't have an identity. 
Um, I'm kind of formulating something in the back of my mind about this team. Um, they're leading the NBA in drives per game, um, which I feel as if just something that we could talk about a little bit as far as obviously you got Zion who's shooting, you know, obviously the usual that he does shoot <clears throat> um, every single year. We see B.I. shooting 50% from the um, from the field, Zion shooting 57% um, and 66% at the free throw line. Um, not stellar numbers, but seeing Zion this year um, in only the 18 games that he's played, averaging 23, um, getting 1.2 steals per night, um, only .3 blocks, which is, you know, half cons- um, compared to last year. But he's lowered his tu- um, his turnovers down to 2.7 per game. Um, you On his two-point attempts, yeah, he's shooting 57%. Um, he doesn't have the sample size to you know, make it matter, and I don't think he's really ever had that sample size. Um, but he's shooting 33% from three on .3 attempts, so you can't really even talk about that. Um, has a good stroke, though. Um, he did shoot a three last night, I believe, um, and it looked good. Finished the game with 10 points. Um, five for eight, just didn't do a lot, but was very, very active, um, on the court, had three steals, six assists, um, six rebounds. Um, he shot 0 for two last night in that Utah game. He shot one for one. That's what it was. Um, but he shot 0 for two last night and 63% from the field, um, five for eight in 28 minutes, um, plus four. You kind of want your guy to be, to do a bit more than that, but he also played 28 minutes last night, um. So you can't really, it wasn't really in foul trouble either. Um, he had three fouls, but um, last night's game was a lot of fun. It was a lot more of the Brandon Ingram game than it was the Zion game. And that's definitely nice whenever you have the ability to, you have two different styles of offense you can play with this um, B.I.-Zion duo. You got, um, you got Brandon who's um, averaging 24 points per game, five rebounds, five assists, um, shooting 50% from the field. Um, and seven, you know, 78% at the free throw line. So, you know, we got good numbers from B.I. Um, and he's shooting 30% from three. That's lower numbers comparatively to what we've regularly seen from B.I. Um, last year, he shot 39%. Year before that, 33. Year before that, 38. 39%. Um, yeah, this is his lowest shooting per season. Uh, lowest shooting season percent-wise ever since his last year in L.A. Um, where he shot, even then he shot 33%. So this is his worst year on three-point percentage by quite a large margin ever since he became um, a full-time starter. Um, I mean, his 19-year-old season in 2016 and 2017, um, in 28 minutes per game, he shot 29%. But this is his lowest since he's really developed into a a star-level talent, which I think we all know Brandon Ingram is. That's not a that's nothing I think that people can really argue at this point with what he's able to do. But Brandon Ingram ain't no slouch on defense either. You have to respect his size, his length um, at 6'8", 6'9", long arms, long, lanky. Um, you got Zion's overall athleticism. I think he has the ability to – I think he's one of those guys who affects the rim a lot more than what the box score will show um, just with his size. Like we saw Demonis Sabonis try to back down Zion last night, and that's, that's Sabonis' game is – um, use his size, bruise you, beat you down low, um, and then finish over top of you. But Zion wasn't letting him do that. Um, he tried to back him down. I think he was about um, six or seven feet away from the rim. And he tried to back him down to the restricted arc. And, you know, then he ended up putting, a, putting up a tough shot. 
Um, but Zion was there for the contest. You know, that's the sort of presence I think that Zion is able to have the um, to have on the basketball floor. Whether it's a because he's already a small guy at six foot six, so and he's already and he's a power forward too. So you know, the power forward now is six ten, six nine, six eight at the smallest. So you know, he's already at a disadvantage there. Um, but Sabonis last night still shot eight for twelve, um, zero for one from three. Um, did a lot of his damage at the free throw line where he shot 10 for 10. Um, yeah, great game from Sabonis last night. Great effort from um, De'Aaron Fox, too. Um, they were starting to put together a good run in that fourth quarter. Um, fell up just short, but Fox still had a great game with 30 points, um, four assists, five rebounds, a steal. Um, did have six turnovers, though. Um, it felt like that was kind of the determining factor for this game. But this this Pelicans team is playing excellent defense at the moment. Like I said, you got to respect Bi. I think that Zion has the the capabilities to be a wrecking ball on the defensive end, just like he is on the offensive end. Um, Dyson Daniels is showing great strides. You got Trey Murphy, who's obviously a three and three and D wing, which I think fits alongside Zion Williamson perfectly. Um, you got Herb Jones, who's playing excellent defense. Obviously been playing excellent defense ever since he left Alabama. Um, came straight into the NBA, and that's what his bread and butter has been. But this Pelicans team has just been a lot of fun um, before this in-season tournament game. Um, but really last night, it just seems like that they were gelling on the defensive end. Able to go in here and get a win against the Sacramento Kings, which I don't really think many of us anticipated, even outside of the seeding, um, the seeding factoring taking that completely out of account. It just felt like that the Pelicans were going to come in here and just lose this game. This because felt like the Kings were just going to be able to run them out the gym and put more points up on the board than them at the end of the day. But we saw pretty much every single Pelicans player fighting on the defensive end. We saw, I had a thought last night, we hadn't seen um, Grand Theft Jose Alvarado do you know his signature move where he just hides in the corner, they bring the ball up, he runs up behind him and steals it. And like as soon as I thought that, about 30 seconds later, guess what Jose Alvarado does? Grand Theft Alvarado things. He just runs up behind um, De'Aaron, pokes the ball away from him. That's one of those six turnovers that he had. Um, but yeah, this defensive team, that's what Jose, being an undrafted player, that's where he's made his bread and butter at. That's why he's still on an NBA roster, is that defense. And it feels like this Pels team has the, I'm not going to call them contenders, obviously. I don't think so. Um, especially not in the West at this point. But it seems like they have the the tools. Even with um, the slower kind of play on the offensive end, I really like what the Pelicans are doing so far. The Pelicans have impressed me. They're really working together as one instead of it being a... It's kind of been in the question, does Zion and B.I. really fit? Does Zion need another running mate? Um, is Zion even healthy enough to play and we need to trade Zion and get B.I. some help? Um, but it really feels like that Zion and B.I. have been able to kind of coexist, and they've really found a way to make it work. And as a Duke fan, um, I want to see this team succeed. Um, you know, they had J.J. Redick there for the last couple years of his career. They got Zion from Duke. They got um, they got B.I., obviously. So big fan of this team, and I'm really, really liking what I'm seeing from them. Um, and I'm really excited for whoever they play next in the – in-season tournament. It'll either be the Bucks or it'll be the Knicks, and then the uh, no, the Pels will either play the the um, the Lakers or the Suns, 
and then the Pacers will either play the Bucks or the Knicks. And, you know, just kind of previewing that game tonight, you know, I, I think I've talked about it before, but I feel like this Milwaukee Bucks team can absolutely beat the wheels off of the Knicks team tonight if they just do the one thing that they are the absolute best at, which is the pick and roll. They just don't do it, and I don't understand why. It's the most frustrating thing to watch about this Bucks team right now is why don't you do the things that you guys do well? That's what you brought Damon for. It felt like this Bucks team could really, really hit that next level if they just had that point guard who could do the P, the PNR a bit, just a bit better than what we've seen in the past. You know, they had Eric Bledsoe running that point guard for the longest time. Um, we saw Malcolm, Malcolm Brogdon doing a little bit. Um, we try to see it with Chris Middleton and Giannis, and that worked, but still as a small forward doing it with a power forward, it just doesn't work as well as if you had a dynamic guard. And obviously the dream scenario in our head was, you know, if Giannis and Curry got together and what if, you know, what if those sort of players happen? And then the Bucks got, you know, not even like a Dollar General version of Steph Curry, but got... You know, like the 1A, 1B, if you don't have Steph Curry, you better be happy to have Dame because that's the sort of impact that these sort of guys could have in a pick-and-roll scenario. Um, you know, we saw it in Golden State um, in an opposite sort of way, but um, Draymond and Steph, and they were able to do, you know, pick-and-roll, dribble handoffs, that sort of thing. It seems like that's what the Bucks should be able to do. Um, we see the Hawks. Obviously, the Hawks are a very, very... PNR centric team with Trey and Clint, um, but they're doing it at a twenty percent rate, and we've seen them have success over the last couple years. Um, made it to the Eastern Conference Finals, kind of with that philosophy. Um, we've seen some great playing from Trey Young. Um, obviously, I got my thoughts on Trey Young, but we won't get into that now. But this Bucks team looks their absolute best whenever they're running that PNR. Their field goal, um, their field goal percentage is fourth in the league on PNR, which is at 48%. Um, the Pacers do it on 20% on uh, 20 possessions per game um, at an 18% rate, while the Bucks do it on, ni- on 19 possessions a night at 17% frequency. Um, but they're generating a lot of points that way, but they just refuse to do it, it feels like. They only have a 17% frequency um, on their pick and roll. Puts them pretty much in the middle of the pack. Orlando Magic do it more. The team beneath them that does it less is the Dallas Mavericks. Um, And we've even seen the Dallas Mavericks have a sensational offensive season yet again. A lot of that is credited to Luka, but also at the same time, we've seen this Mavericks team not struggle, that's not the word to use, but to kind of miss that inside inside presence and that lob threat with Derek Lively. Um, And that's sort of what we've seen Luka be able to do, create shots that way. Um, off of PNR plenty of times before. But that's what the Bucks have here. They got Dame. They got Giannis. It feels like if you go up against Jalen Brunson and you have Mitchell Robinson, or even if if another player is guarding Dame, it might be, I don't know, um, Josh Hart or you know another player like that, it still feels like that the Bucks should absolutely eat that way because you're not switching Mitch onto Dame. You're not switching... Um, JB, or even if you throw RJ onto Dame, you're not really trusting RJ down there with um, Giannis. Um, Julius could obviously go down there and you know bang with Giannis for a little bit and make things 
make it a rougher night for Giannis, but you're not trusting Julius Randle on a switch with Dame either. So that's what this Pelicans team, like, or sorry, this Bucks team really, really has going for them is they have two of the most pick your poison NBA players. They got Dame and they got Giannis, where if you want to leave the inside open, that's fine because we're going to give it to Giannis down low. If you want to give us the perimeter shot, don't worry. We got Dame. We got Chris. We got, heck, you got Splash Mountain. That man has a nickname for his ability to shoot threes, and you're not utilizing it. We've seen, you know, Brooke Lopez is the anchor of this team uh, on the defensive end, but he had, and he has the ability to sh- um, stretch the floor as well. So we can't just, if I am the Bucks right now, I'm really looking back and s- sitting back and wondering, who is it that is making this not reach its fullest potential? Is it is it coaching? Is it the love that Damian Lillard and Adrian Griffin have for each other for because of his time um, in Portland together? What is it? Is it? I, I mean, we've seen things about Dame wanting to be used in a different way in this in this Bucks offense, and obviously Adrian Griffin and Dame have a, a history together because of Dame's time in Portland. And, you know, we've already seen, I forget what his name was, that had to step down from the Bucks coaching staff. I'm ashamed of myself for forgetting this. I'm not even going to cut this. I'm just going to, I completely forget. Terry Stotts. Yes, Terry Stotts. Terry Stotts, former um, Portland Trailblazers head coach, had a relationship with Dame. We saw him step down. And I'm almost starting to wonder, what is the reason that assistant coach Terry Stotts stepped down before the season even started on October 20th? I'm wondering if it's in a Bob Myers, Golden State Warriors sort of atmosphere or sort of reasoning. And what I mean by that is we saw Bob Myers step down because Bob Myers has been the puppet behind, okay, I don't want to say puppeteer, but has been the man behind the scenes orchestrating the Golden State Warriors dynasty. We saw him draft Draymond in the second round. We saw um, Clay Thompson, obviously. And then we saw them hold on to Steph Curry in the way that they they have, and then they obviously gave him the franchise keys, even with the ankle injuries and those sorts of things. They still had full faith and trust him, didn't trade him away, and able to build an absolute dynasty around the Golden State Warriors. And we saw Bob Myers come in and step away and say that I know that there is going to be hard decisions that need to be made for this Golden State Warriors team, and I frankly don't want to be the guy to do it. These are my brothers. These are my sons, practically, at this point. We love each other like family. I mean, I can only imagine the Christmas parties, you know, the coming over to each other's houses, those sorts of things. They built a bond together. So then you have this sort of same exact dynamic going on here in Milwaukee, where I'm almost starting to wonder if Terry Stott stepped down for what he did is because he realized that there isn't going to be a way for this team to sort of 
make it all work to the point where it's going to be no conversations about it. And we saw Terry Stotts getting into arguments and huddles. We saw things like that happening um, in preseason, I believe it was. And it almost seems like Dame obviously fits here, and I'm not saying that he doesn't, but we're living in a world where we're wondering, why isn't this fitting? Because it really felt like Dame was a plug-and-play player for these Milwaukee Bucks. And I'm really, really excited to see what they do tonight against the Knicks because this feels like a matchup that they should expose. And we're going to be watching intently, obviously. This is the in-season tournament. All eyes are on this. And that's another thing that kind of contributes to this in-season tournament going the exact way, the best way it could, is that's the big trade of the offseason and we're watching Dame and Giannis together. And I wonder if it's going to spark any more comments, comments tonight, conversations tonight about the sort of play style that we're seeing from the Bucks right now. Is it sustainable? Is it something that maybe they're just saving the PNR for the playoffs? I don't really know. Or if they've been... I don't know what they're doing. You know, I'm, I'm so confused at the Bucks outsider looking in that it, the question that needs answering seems like it has the most simple answer in the world, but they're not willing to do it. These are people who are paid millions and millions of dollars to figure this sort of thing out and make it effective. But that Dame trade made everything figured out for you. That that was the recipe right there. All you have to do is just utilize it in the right way, and they're not doing that. And I can't really understand why. So I'm very excited to see how that goes tonight in tonight's in-season tournament. And going to be watching um, LeBron and KD face off against each other for the first time in what feels like a long time. Last game that they played against each other wasn't that long ago, but they both kind of put up a stinker. So we'll see how tonight's game go. Um, I'm going to be active on Twitter. <laughs> responding to, or, you know, live tweeting stuff like I always do. Um, if you got any questions, feel free to tweet them at me. Um, I'm so excited for tonight's in-season tournament games at all. Timberwolves. Oh, my goodness. I think it's time we finally start talking about them. We got to start giving them some more love, man, especially around the entire league. I feel like nobody's really talking about the Timberwolves in the way that they should be right now. They're still the one seed, like, they're first in the Western Conference, a stacked Western Conference. Um, and they've done something recently that was kind of something new. Something I don't really think that we'd seen before. Um, and they ran a three big man lineup. And I think it was Worldwide Wob who put out a um put out a tweet on it, but he said that <clears throat> they ran a three man lineup, a three big man lineup two of which are shooting 50, 40, 90, and the other one is the DPOY. So the two that are shooting 50, 40, 90 are Nas Reed and Cat, and then the other one is Rudy Gobert. So I think Cat has shown us that obviously he works better as a two option than he does as the first option, um, which is what they kind of drafted him to do. But then they brought in Anthony Edwards, and Anthony Edwards is having a better season than what he had last year. He's averaging 26 points per game, um, playing great defense. Um, and he's obviously taken over as the one option here. But he's shooting better from the free throw line. Um, he's shooting better from 
from three this year than any year prior. And now you surrounded him first off with defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert. Um, especially the last few games have kind of swayed my thoughts and opinions. Cause you know, the NBA is a constantly changing conversation and Rudy Gobert has catapulted his way into my number one um, DPOY candidate ranking. And he's anchoring down a top defense. Not by himself, obviously, because what the Timberwolves have done have put together good perimeter defenders. And what the perimeter defenders can't stop, Rudy Gobert will prevent. And that's anything at the rim. So if you... Get past to the perimeter, guys. Guess what? You still got to you still got to deal with Rudy Gobert. So him just anchoring down that defense. Anthony Edwards being a good defender. Mike Conley, even as he's gotten older, um, you know, with this being his 17th NBA season, um, I think he's 36, 35 right now. Um, still playing good perimeter defense. Um, you still got Rudy Gobert back there backing him up. You got Nas Reed, um, who's not a soft defender whatsoever. Um, quick with his feet, um, grew up being a point guard, developing those sort of sorts of skills. So he has great um, lateral quickness. Like I said, you got Jada, Mc- and you also have Jada McDaniel's. You can not talk about defense and not bring up Jada McDaniel's. The defense that he's played, especially ever since he's come back from his injury, has been much needed for this team. And not even not even in the sense that you know they were suffering on defense without him, but adding that extra perimeter guy is something that's kind of been missing and kind of whenever we were talking midway through the year last year about, you know, blow this team up right now, like get rid of cat. Um, you're not giving up Rudy Gobert cause you gave up too much to get them. Um, those sorts of things. <clears throat> you are, it kind of looks like that the Timberwolves are telling us right now midway through the season. Cause you know, we're 20 games in, so we have a decent sample size and, like, when healthy, this team is right now the first seed. Now, when other teams are healthier the first seed, that kind of remains to be seen. But right now, this team is at the first seed and looks like that they're going to maybe not stay there, but stay around there for the rest of the season. If, it, you know, providing everybody stays healthy. Um, we're seeing some, obviously, all-star play from... From Cat, well, we're seeing Cat play at a star in his role, like we've talked about before. Um, playing good defense as well. He's well, not playing excellent defense. Playing good defense, which is at this point is willing is him willing to try, which he does. Um, like I've already said, they got great perimeter defenders. Nas Reed moves his feet well, has excellent lateral quickness, and this Timberwolves team feels like that they have the pieces that they were missing that really felt like blow this team up that they were missing to feel like that they had any sort of chance in the playoffs. So not only do they feel like a top seed contender for the rest of the year in the Western Conference, but also at the same time, whenever you hit the playoffs, is can you play can you play good enough defense on the Phoenix Suns, let's say? Play good enough defense on KD, Devin Booker, Bradley Bill, if it's all three of them, if it's Two of them, you know, that kind of remains to be seen as well because we haven't really seen any minutes, really, of the big three altogether there in Phoenix. But whatever that assortment of the big three is, 
can you play good enough defense on them to get by them? I feel kind of right now as if that answer is yes. Um, we have to see what Bradley Bill looks like whenever he comes back from his injury. Um, D-Book is obviously playing at an MVP level, and so is Kevin Durant also. Um, but can you slow down, maybe not those two, but can you slow down the rest of the team enough to where it needs to be more than just those two guys, but they don't have a third guy to kind of alleviate any of that, you know, <laughs> shut down. It seems like whenever you're talking about the Phoenix Suns, um, or at least when the broadcasters are, it's it's KD, it's Devin Booker, and it's, you know, Grayson Allen. Even Grayson Allen's out right now. Like, who is that third player for the Phoenix Suns that the Timber- Timberwolves could kind of, yeah, you know, if he beats us tonight, he beats us. I think the Timberwolves are in a great enough spot that you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of that to win these games. And I think that's exactly what they're doing because that defense is suffocating on most nights. And with great defense comes transition offense. And that's what the Timberwolves can do is they can run out in transition um, because they have a good assortment of players like even Cat. Whenever you, if you have him trailing on a fast break, kick it out to him. Like I said, 50 40, um, 90 shooter. So shooting 40% from three, that's um, offense and transition. Or you got Mike Conley, who's still a solid three point shooter. Um, and obviously, Anthony Edwards is no stranger to taking a pull of three and transitioning and transition and being able to make that basket consistently. Um, you got Slow Mo, who um, on transition has the ability to get to the rim in his slow, quick way, why he has the name slow-mo, um, in his slow, methodical, but quick way at the same time, be able to get to the get to the rim. I've seen that plenty of times over the last couple playoff series from the Timberwolves, and I feel as if this team is really hitting a stride right now and kind of making all of us say, we take back what we said about the Rudy Gobert thing. Even with um, Shake Milton is giving them solid-ish minutes off the bench. Not playing great basketball, not playing the worst. Um, You'd much rather have a different player than him, but I think that's why we're seeing his minutes also decrease. They're seeing that he's just not working. Um, Even Jordan McLaughlin, not a horrible player. He's only played in a couple games this season, but he's also um, he also has an MCL sprain. So whenever he comes back, does he still find himself a spot in this rotation? I hope so. Um, they got Wendell Moore out of Duke, so they even got a young guy who I don't think we've seen that much of Wendell Moore um, at all this year, but this team is showing me things that I think once we reach playoff time and the game slows down and you have to grit and grind your way through the playoff series, um, seven-game series, I think this team has the potential to outlast and play such great defense that they can shock the world in a couple of different playoff series. And as long as this team stays healthy, which I really hope they do because they're playing great basketball right now. Um, I mean, even players just like Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who aren't exactly (laughs) doing the most in the box score, but they're giving impactful minutes. And that's kind of what that's kind of what a team needs to be successful. Yeah, you need your superstars, but they got that. They got 
they're role players, they have that. But you also just need players who give you good, solid minutes, who, you know, if there is, you know, foul trouble with your starting point guard and you need your sixth man, you have another player that you can throw in there. And they give you not the greatest minutes in the world, not sixth man of the year candidate sort of minutes, but just have the ability to hold it together while when their number is called. I think that's what really a good championship needs and they can rely on and a good playoff team in the same in the same conversation because you need these players to have that trust with each other and that's also what the Timberwolves just have right now. They have that camaraderie, they have the ability to no matter who's on the floor, we know what is expected of us. And that's just a reflection of great coaching, great on the floor communication. And that's what I'm seeing from the Timberwolves right now. And I think they have the ability to put their name more on a map. And we could, maybe this is the year that they have to go all in on it. Maybe we see what happens um, once the trade market sort of opens up here in the next couple of days on the 15th. And then again in January, maybe they make some moves at the trade deadline. I don't really know. But um, I'm loving the game, the, the games, the excitement, the overall basketball that I'm seeing from the Minnesota, Minnesota Timberwolves right now. And I really want to see this team continue. And I'm going to be rooting for them um, every single night because it seems like the most fun stories in the NBA are the ones that kind of surprise a lot of people. Everybody, you know, obviously loves the underdog story, but... I don't think anybody in the NBA expected the Minnesota Timberwolves to be in the conversations that they're in right now. I don't think anybody expected Timberwolves and first seed to be in the same sentence um, without the word not being thrown in there. But that's the conversations that we're having, and it's not. it doesn't look like it's just the product of you know happenstance or circumstances, things like that. It looks like that this team has the ability to finish up there in that one, two, three, three seed by the end of the year, and I have confidence in them doing that. So that's what this Minnesota Timberwolves team is showing me, and I really hope that they keep this sort of play up throughout the rest of the year, stay healthy for the rest of the year, because this is exciting basketball. So the last thing I want to talk about before I get up out of here is this Warriors team. Um... Not 100% sure what I'm feeling about this team as of now. Um, I think what I've seen from Clay the last few games, he's still, he's just not the player that he once was. And I think that that is obviously not anything that anybody <coughs> didn't expect. But also at the same time, I think that he got a lot of slander last year. For the way that he played, um, a lot of undeserved slander, might I add. Uh, last year, he still averaged 22 points per game. He shot uh, 47% on his two-point attempts, uh, 41% on his three-point attempts, and his overall field goal percentage was 44%. Um, didn't foul a lot, two fouls a game. Um, it's just the defense obviously wasn't at, as there last year as it's been in previous years. Still shot 88% from the free throw line. Um, there were times last year where Clay Thompson did look a bit, did look a bit shaky. You know, can't lie. But it looks 
it looked like last year, at least for me, from the outside looking in, I was excited for this Warriors team this year. Um, see if Clay could build on that, you know, see if he was getting back into his flow. Um, you know, they bring in Chris Paul. The initial couple weeks of Warriors basketball is a lot of fun with Chris Paul. Um, remember, they were they were a um, positive when actually Steph Curry was off the floor. Um, that's never happened before, but they bring in Chris Paul. Um, that's diminished significantly. Um, Andrew Wiggins is having, I think, one of, if not the worst statistical year of his NBA career so far. Um, yeah, this year he's averaging 13 points per game, which is the lowest of his career. Um, he's turning the ball over two times per game, which isn't insane, but also his usage rate is down is also down, so you can't really take that into account. Um, his total rebounds, he's averaging four this year, averaging one assist a game, which is also the lowest of his career. Um, Andrew Wiggins has never, whenever he was drafted, drafted as a bucket getter. Minnesota, his time was just as a bucket getter. Um, here in Golden State, he played his role um, being a bucket getter, but still averaging just one assist a game. Um, that's less than, his, than a couple years ago, because remember a couple years ago, he was... He came into Golden State and was averaging four assists um, during his um, time in Golden State after he got traded in the 2019-2020 season. Um, he had some games where he was getting some great assists. Um, looked like he was fitting right along perfectly with this Warriors team. Um, but just this year, he's shooting 59% from the free throw line. I mean, he's his free throws have dropped off ever since he got to Golden State, it feels like. Um even in his all-star year, he shot 63%. Um, last year, he shot 61%. This year, he's shooting 59%. Um, he's hitting half of his field goal shot, um, two-point attempts, that is. Um, and he's shooting 26.7% from the three-point line. He's making less than half a three, or he's, make, he's making less than one three per game, and he's shooting three per game. That's unacceptable from what looked to be the at times during the NBA Finals run that the Warriors went on, it looked like he was their second best player a lot of the times. Um, obviously, Kevon Looney did his thing during that Finals run, but also at the same time, Wiggins had some games where he took over there in the playoffs. And obviously, last year, Wiggins was dealing with um, personal, personal issues. Um, I believe it was his dad that had passed away, so he spent a lot of time um, missed a lot of time last year. Only played 37 games. Um, I think he came back for the playoffs, but this looks so rusty. Um, and it's only gotten worse from here. So you got Clay, who's not having a great year. Wiggins not having a great year. Chris Paul's not doing the same thing that he has been doing. Um, the only bright spot really for this team right now is Brandon Podzimski. Um who's actually from, I found out, he went to um, Illinois. Illinois. Um, he's actually American. I thought he was overseas um, whenever I first heard his name. I looked him up. Um, but he's actually American-born. Um, that's the only bright spot off of the bench for this team right now. Um, Jonathan Kaminga hasn't looked bad in the minutes that he's played, but he also is very, very inconsistent. Um, like, some nights he'll have 12 or 15 points, and then the very next game he's, he's dropping zero. Um, and only playing 10 minutes. So, you know, this year he's averaging 11 points per game, um, one assist per game, which is down from last year, um, 68% from the free throw line, 
25% from three is scarily bad because you you have to think right now that the Warriors are on Steph Curry's timeline. And you can't have somebody who's shooting 45% from the field then shooting 25% from three. That is just not fit with this Warrior system. Um, and that's somebody that they picked um, seventh overall whenever <coughs> the Warriors were had their down years. Same thing with Jonathan uh, or James Wiseman, but he's already gone. So is Jonathan Kaminga next one to go out the door? Um, you obviously got Moses Moody, who was selected 14th overall in the um, 2021 NBA draft. Um, this year, he's having, he's actually having a pretty decent year. He's averaging nine points per game, um, making 74% of his free throws, um, shooting the best from three of his career, his young career, at 37%. Um, he's actually making 61% of his two-point attempts, which I thought was kind of, that kind of jumped off the page at me whenever I looked this up. Um, but yeah, 49% from the field. Um, on nine points per game isn't bad, um, but he's only playing 20 minutes per game. So let's view his thirty, um, his per 36. His per 36 average him have him averaging 17, um, have him averaging 17, shooting 37% from three. Um, so maybe they move on from Kaminga and just see what Moses Moody can do um, in that shooting guard position. Get rid of Clay Thompson because. This Warriors team is on Steph Curry's timeline. You can't have a you can't have an, a Hall of Famer, a guy who's still in the prime of his career. Steph Curry's have averaging some of the best numbers of his career, which is insane knowing what Steph Curry has done in his um, entirety of his NBA career. He's averaging 29 points per game. Um shooting he's shooting his best from the free throw line, you know, so far. Not the biggest sample size at 18 games, but 93% um, on seven attempts per night, which is the highest of his career as well. So that's why I feel like the longevity, obviously the small sample side of 18 games, but he's shooting the most of his career right now and shooting 93% doing it. Um, he's shooting 43% from three, which is the highest since his 2018-2019 um, <clears throat> season. Um, and he's obviously Steph Curry, so he's shooting 12 per game, shooting 43%, outstanding numbers. And overall field goal percentage is at 47.6. We'll round up to 48%. So, you know, on the brink of 50, 40, 90 club, but um, just a couple of percentages off of that on field goal. But whenever you're on Steph Curry's timeline and you have maybe a young team, I don't know what that team would be, though, that would give up something for Kaminga. Like, what? it feels like a lot of players fit this Warriors team, but we've also seen before that Bob Myers wouldn't do in-season trades, but this is a completely different Warriors team. Um, he's, um, oh my goodness, what's his name? I forget who took over as Mike Dunleavy. Mike Dunleavy took over as Golden State Warriors, um, head of basketball operations, after Bob Myers stepped down. And he does not have a tie to Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and Jonathan Kaminga, Moses Moody, the players that they kind of read, um, they kind of built a relationship with. He doesn't have that relationship. He's coming in, and what is he looking to do? And I feel like whenever a... We've seen it historically with new owners or new GMs. Um, they come in, and they specifically new owners, but we've also seen it with GMs, where they come into a team like this that you know has the potential to contend, and they make... 
the trade that kind of makes the fans happy. Like, hey, look at us, we're in contention. Um, I believe A-Rod took over for the Timberwolves. And then not long later, they traded for Rudy Gobert. It's nothing that is foreign in the NBA slash sports world. So, I wonder what Mike Dunleavy is cooking up in the back of his mind. Because you put you put um, Clay Thompson, and let's say that they did um, Moses Moody together. You got Clay Thompson, <coughs> who maybe... Maybe he goes somewhere else and he is averaging better numbers, or somebody's willing to not take a reach because you know it's Clay Thompson, but bring them in and maybe see if Clay turns into that six-man sharp shoot, sharp, sharp shooter, kind of like a Kevin Herter for. Um, I mean, that's what Kevin Herter's role is in Sacramento right now is your Clay Thompson mimic sharp shooter. Or that's what Kevin Herter's role historically has been. But maybe they package Clay Thompson up in a young guy and just ship him out somewhere to see what you can get. Um, but it seems like that this Warriors team needs to make some moves to stay on the Steph Curry timeline. Um, we don't really know how long Steph Curry has left in the tank. Um, he's not showing us any signs of slowing down, but Father Time catches up eventually and conquers all, so... I'm really interested to see what this Warriors team does because, I mean, even even Kevon Looney isn't ideal for this Warriors team. I think Steph Curry is just so good, and Kevon Looney is such a presence on defense, but the Warriors are still the smallest team in the league with Kevon, Con, Kevon Looney at 6'9". you got Draymond 6'6", six, 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 but even that might be generous. But, you know, Mike Dunleavy might even want to ship out Draymond. Um, it still feels like that $20 million a year um, contract that they gave Draymond in the offseason that still feels like a pretty good contract, and I feel like I feel like a team could make that work, but then you also have to think what sort of baggage you bring in with Draymond Green. And, you know, Draymond obviously has the the history that he does, but you have to think as an organization, are you willing to bring that in and see what, see what, to see what happens really, because we all know the history of Draymond Green, but Draymond's having a pretty good year so far, only 12 games played, but in those games, he's averaging, you know, 10 points per game. He's shooting 83% from the free throw line, shooting 47% from three which he didn't even do in his best years in Golden State in 2015-2016 when he was shooting around um, 38% in 2015. Um, and he's making he's making 48% of a um, regular field goal percentage, but you know that's a couple points down. But he's still bringing great defense, um, still communicates, still does all the great things that you want out of your defensive leader. Um, not at the high level that he once did, but still has the fundamentals there and still matters and still brings you that value on defense and on offense still has the ability to, um, get assists, um, play, make, um, run the ball in transition, do those sorts of things. But are you willing to take that sort of flyer on Draymond Green? I'm not 100% sure for this team, but I'm really interested to see what happens with this Warriors team, um, in the near future and the far future. Um, 
I would like to see Steph Curry get one more just because that would be such a fun story to, you know, relive again. 2022, whenever they went on their, uh, whenever they were NBA champions against the Celtics, it was fun to watch Steph Curry just, it felt like at that time just cook one more time, but then, you know, fast forward two years and he's still doing Steph Curry domination things. Um, I'm interested to see what this Warriors team does because I hope that they realize that they are on Steph Curry's timeline and some of the players on their roster just don't fit it right now. And that's 100% fine, but you have to make the necessary changes to accommodate your star player, especially when your star player isn't just anybody, but your star player is Stephen Curry. I want to thank everybody again for tuning in to the set, coming in here and hanging out with me, um, just talking some ball. Um, I appreciate you step, stopping by once again. Um, like I said earlier, I'll say it one more time, but go over to whichever um, podcasting platform you may use. I'm on all the major ones. Um, go leave a review. Um, leave a question. Do whatever. Um, the easiest way to reach out is on Twitter. Um, it's at NBA Set Pod. Um, NBA SET POD but once again if you made it this far into the episode you had to enjoy something so go subscribe Um, and I appreciate everybody once again for stepping out and coming and hanging out with me and I'll see you guys very very soon don't know when but be on the lookout and I hope everybody has a great rest of their week peace